0: Tim, over to you. Thanks, Tom. Uh, I read the uh, the other day that uh, a New York preacher who was well known for his designer suits and his luxury cars, and his gold and his diamonds was robbed of a million dollars by a gunman during his sermon. So, uh, just in case if you're thinking of having a go, I just wanted to say i would left all my worldly wealth at home, <laughs> and it doesn't amount to a million dollars. So we're going to look at this, this issue of relevance, and to tackle it, I want to start by telling a story that I have used, I think, certainly in, in, in other places I've spoken, may, hear, may have done here, so forgive me if you've heard this before, but I, I think it is relevant to what we're going to be talking about. Jonathan Sachs, who I think is one of the great social uh, writers of our day, sadly died a few years ago, the ex-chief rabbi, tells a story of uh, you going up to London for the first time with a son or a daughter, a grandson, granddaughter, nephew or niece. And you decide to start the day, because they have never been to London before, by taking them on the Millennium Wheel. And I don't know whether you've ever been on the Millennium Wheel, but for, as we go up from Oldershot, you go into Waterloo Station, and it's about three or 400 yards, it's very close on the south bank of the river. So you get into the pod. used to be British Airways. It's now somebody else. Emirates, I think. And it takes off, and it goes in an anti-clockwise direction. And as you take off in this pod, you get to about 3 o'clock on the clock face, and the child is with you, tugs you by the arm, and says, What's out there? What can we see? What are all these buildings that I can see? So you look down to your left, and if you imagine yourself on the south bank of the river near Waterloo, look over to the other side of the river, slightly to your left, and you can see the... Alice of Westminster so you explain to the child about politics and how political power is generated and distributed and what that looks like and the child because they're yours asks you some very sharp questions and you give them some good answers and by now the pod is at 12 o'clock on the clock face and you sweep your arm majestically over to the right hand side and you point to the middle distance and there in the middle distance to the right hand side is the city the city of London So you explain to the child about economic power, where the economy comes from, how it's driven, where does money, what does wealth look like, etc, etc. And you talk about that whole piece of economics. And the child asks you some sharp questions and you give them some pretty good answers. And by now the pod is down at 9 o'clock on the clock face. You're coming into land and you think, got off to a good start. Going to be a good day. And the child tugs you by the arm and says, what about these other buildings? And he points at St. Paul's Cathedral or she points at Westminster Abbey, and says, what are those buildings for? What do they do? What do they distribute? And Jonathan simply says, how do you answer the child? It's a great question, and we're going to come back to it in our question and discussion at the end of the sermon that Tom talked about. Amidst the perfect storm of today's economic and political mess, with an energy, inflation, and cost of living crisis, and a leadership campaign where around 160,000 people are going to elect our next Prime Minister, what exactly are Westminster Abbey and St Paul's Cathedral for? Is the gospel that they and we here preach at all relevant? The dictionary definition of relevance is having a significant and demonstrable bearing on the current situation. It's about something or someone providing the evidence to prove or disprove an issue, like providing relevant testimony in a court of law. And it's about uh, social relevance, something or someone providing meaning or purpose in a current culture. In his uh, famous sonnet, Shelley, published in 1818, called Ozymandias, tells of a ruined statue of a great forgotten emperor who had the hubris to believe that his deeds would make him immortal in the eyes of history. And without overly saying, over, overtly saying it, the poem asks whether the then civilization and the deeds of ordinary people would be as quickly forgotten as he was. Even more than 200 years later, the question is still a haunting and relevant one for us today, particularly perhaps for the politicians vying for the leadership or for somebody like Boris. And going back even further in time, most would surely argue that Shakespeare's plays are still very relevant to us and have much to teach us, even though the world has changed somewhat significantly since his day. But other long-established teachings and traditions may not be. Many would certainly argue that the judeo christian moral and ethical rules of behaviour that have underpinned our societies for centuries are largely irrelevant today. Humanity, they say, has improved so much that we no longer need an external God to anchor our behaviours. Our minds have expanded to such an extent that we can determine what our own truth is based on our particular circumstances at our particular time rather than on texts written hundreds or indeed thousands of years ago. But I, for one, would argue that today's generation are, at their core, actually no different to every other generation than has gone before. Previous generations also challenged traditional values, and they asked much the same questions as we do, as they looked to establish their identity, looked for a reason to be, and wondered if it all really mattered in the end. And although we live in a world that seems determined to drive Christ and the church out of the public square as not just irrelevant, but as an enemy, an enemy holding back progress and stopping people from being who they want to be, that actually too, I don't think is any different to the world 2,000 years ago. Let's hear what Paul has to say about it. Charlotte's going to come and read to us from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 1 to 5.
1: In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. It's a great passage. It's one of my favorite passages. I love this bit about itching ears. I've had many conversations, as I'm sure many of you had, down the years, with people who don't actually believe in God or of Jesus, decrying my faith in him and the irrelevance of the Bible. And on the face of it, the main itching ear issue seems to be about culture, and specifically, of course, in our current generation and our current time, sexual culture. The recent Lambeth Conference, which has just finished a week or so ago, discussed issues like poverty and reconciliation and resolving conflict. But it was the debate on gay sex that inevitably caught the media headlines, giving the impression yet again that the church is self-absorbed helplessly divided and irrelevant. And in the midst of it all, Archbishop Justin, who I have to say after nine years in the job is now looking older than Methuselah, was confronted with a public letter sprayed all over the media saying that he had betrayed the LGBTQ plus people and condemning his statement of exclusion. The woman who wrote it tore into what she called the fallible, outdated and bigoted interpretations of the Bible that misrepresented the true teachings of Jesus Christ. Namely, that all that matters is to be a good person. She's actually a humanist and interestingly spared us her definition of what good looks like and which of Christ's true teachings she believed in and which she didn't. But she's not alone. A former U.S. megachurch pastor recently said that the church follows the instructions from the Bible and forbids same-sex marriage. It will become irrelevant. Now, I'm not sure what authority he based his comment on, but it was undoubtedly a reflection of the current cultural environment, his own cultural observations. And these debates are, of course, not unimportant. They're very live debates. But do we really believe that if the church endorsed every aspect of today's sexual culture, that it would suddenly become much more relevant again and that there would be revival. I, for one, doubt it because behind all of this, there are some much deeper issues. Now, there are, of course, huge numbers of people who don't want to take Jesus seriously or even think about him. Wide is the gate And broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. And when it comes to irrelevance, many refuse to look beyond some hypocritical Christians that they know, pointing to their unloving or inconsistent behaviour. And of course, we're all guilty of that. Or the deep faults in the church, of which of course there are many. And they don't want any part of religious hypocrisy. Or they reject him because they blame God for some sad or tragic experience that they or someone they loved has suffered. That is all understandable and we shouldn't just dismiss it out of hand. But I reckon that the real reason most people ignore or reject Christ is because they don't want him to interfere in their lives, in the whole aspect of their lives, not just their sexual lives. Sexual practices. Put most simply, they reject ultimately the idea of sin as portrayed in the Bible, and they reject any idea that we need a savior. But at one time or other, even these people must surely gaze up at the stars and wonder who put them there and put us here. Ask themselves, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going after I die? And what they need today is no different to what humanity has always needed. Hope, love, forgiveness, peace, to live a contented and a fulfilled life. Do a search for Jesus on Amazon.com and you'll find well over 263,000 related books and materials. Google his name, And in a millisecond, you'll get over 174 million references. So it's obvious that there are many asking questions and looking for honest answers. And we shouldn't be surprised about that. The pop icon Madonna enjoys a $60 million recording contract. She sold over 100 million records worldwide and recorded more number one hits than any other individual and she's captured the heart of a generation hoping to find fulfillment in sensual relationships. But in the end, this cultural Pied Piper realized that she did not have the answer to life's questions. She attempted to answer the question, why am I here, by becoming a diva, and confessing that there were many years when she thought that fame, fortune, and public approval would bring her true happiness. But one day, she said, you wake up and realize that they don't, adding, I still felt something was missing. I wanted to know the meaning of true and lasting happiness and how I could go about finding it. Can there be meaning without God? Pascal, the great French philosopher, believed this inner void that she and all of us experience can only be filled him. Pascal is the one who wrote that well-known phrase that I'm sure most of you have heard many times there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which only Jesus Christ can fill even the famous atheist Bertrand Russell declared that unless you assume a God the question of life's purpose is meaningless now I'm not sure if Madonna has yet found the meaning that she is looking for but I think at least she hasn't given up, and she's still trying. Unlike a guy called Ralph Barton, who found life to indeed be meaningless, and in his suicide note he wrote, I've had a few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I've gone from wife to wife, from house to house, visited countries of the world, but I'm fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours in every day. There's a sad and endless list of those like him that have ended their lives in emptiness and despair. Actors like Marilyn Monroe, musicians like Jimi Hendrix, and the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, all supposedly reaching the top, only to realize there's nothing there that truly fulfills and satisfies the soul. On August the 16th, 1977. Looking around, some of you will remember this well. Elvis was found lying face down in the master bedroom of the Graceland Mansion in Memphis, Tennessee. He was just 42. Apparently, not from far from his body, with one arm seemingly reaching out to touch it, there was a Bible. But this is not just about the rich and the famous. Despair followed by suicide is the biggest killer of young men in in the UK today. But it needn't be that way. At 39, Chuck Colson occupied the office next to the President of the United States. You may remember him. He was the tough guy of the Nixon White House, the hatchet man who made all the hard decisions. But in 1972, the Watergate scandal shredded his reputation and his world collapsed. Later, he wrote, I've been concerned with myself, I had achieved, I had succeeded, and I had never thought of anything being immeasurably superior to myself. If I had had, in fleeting moments, thought about the infinite power of a God, I had not related him to my life. But after Watergate, he began thinking about life differently. He discovered that the questions, who am I, why am I here, and where am I going, were all answered in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the key. Ultimately, Christianity isn't a teaching or a philosophy or even a way of life. It's above everything else, a relationship with a person. As the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, it is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Only he offers life with real meaning. And the relevance of this biblical truth never fades. In his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, Bertrand Russell dismissed everything Jesus said about life's meaning, including his promise of eternal life, and resigned himself, he says, to ultimately rot in the grave. But life is much more than making money or having fun or being successful and then ending up in a graveyard. And his belief that humanity has advanced and improved so much that we no longer need a God but ourselves, and only ourselves, is constantly exposed as the empty lie that it is. The modern day mantra of just being true to ourselves just doesn't cut it. Living in a personal relationship with Christ is the only thing that fulfills us. Pascal is right. The utter disappointment with the emptiness of the things of this world can only be replaced by knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ. He answers the questions of identity, of purpose, of meaning in this life. He is the only one who provides hope in a hopeless world, love in a loveless world, forgiveness in an unforgiving world, and true peace in the chaos of life. And he calls everyone to come to him. Charlotte, come and share with us a reading from Matthew chapter 11, which will be very familiar, I'm sure.
1: Verse 28. <clears throat> come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.
0: Jesus calls everyone, as he has always done, to come to him, all those who are weary of life's struggles, burdened by the weight of life's worries. Unlike the world, he's gentle and humble. In him we find a peace that the world doesn't even begin to understand. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And in him, everyone can find rest for their souls. When he declared that he is the way, the truth and the life, he declared an an enduring truth. As I've said before in previous sermons, without truth, a belief is only speculation plus sincerity. Only truth makes a belief true. The words of Jesus declare the universal requirements for being set free and living free. If you stand by my teaching, he said, as the word, the logos, as the very meaning of meaning, then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And that applies to all. Young and old, poor and rich, powerless or powerful, all races, all classes, all generations. His truth is true even if nobody believes it. Just as falsehoods and lies are falsehoods and lies even if everybody believes them. That's why God's truth does not yield to fashion, or opinion, or status, or rank, or title, the views of the powerful, the sincerity of great minds, or the passage of time. It's simply true. And that's the end of it. God may have been declared dead in the 1960s, but He's still around. The values and truths of the Bible penetrate the spirit and soul, the thoughts and intents of the hearts of those who read it. His message is clear, compelling, and current, and timeless. So be encouraged. Jesus is as relevant today as he has ever been. As Hebrews 13 says, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everyone is, of course, free to ignore him or reject him. But those who reject him as irrelevant because he no longer fits our culture are just plain wrong there's nothing new that we are facing today that people haven't faced for generations in the past. Nothing new that makes Christ anything but fresh, worthwhile and powerful. And the four and a half million people who attend Christian places of worship, worship every week in the UK find that truth as an enduring and relevant truth. So for those of us who do believe that the Gospels are as relevant today as they've ever been... What could we do about it? How can we as individuals be relevant to our families and our communities? The best way to counter those who say the Bible is irrelevant, I would offer, is to live the truth of God's word in front of them. Be salt and light. Pray for them. Love them. Share the truth that I've spoken about with them. And engage in the life and the work of the church. Get engaged in things like besom, Healing on the Streets, all the other things that we run from here at St. Paul's. And make it clear to everyone that you aren't doing it just to be nice, but in order to share the love of Christ and to bring people who desperately need to hear about him closer to the kingdom. Most people make choices having been influenced by others to some degree or other. The influence may be deliberately malign, and there's lots of that around, or just plain wrong. In the event reminiscent of the Grenfell tragedy, on September the 11th, 2001, 600 people put their trust in the wrong advice and suffered the consequences. A man on the 92nd floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center had just heard a jet crashing into the North Tower. Stunned by the explosion, he called the police for instructions on what to do. We need to know if we need to get out of here, he said urgently on the phone. The voice at the other end advised him not to evacuate. I would wait till further notice, he said. All right, replied the caller, we won't evacuate. And he hung up. Shortly after nine o'clock, another jet crashed into the 80th floor of the South Tower. Nearly all 600 people in the top floors of the South Tower, perished. The failure to evacuate the building was one of the day's great tragedies. Those 600 people perished because they relied on the wrong information, even though the person who was giving it to them was trying to help. The tragedy would not have occurred if they'd be given the right information. And how many of them had not heard the truth of the Gospels because no one had bothered to share it to demonstrate it with them. The choice of accepting or rejecting the good news of Jesus Christ is infinitely important. It has eternal consequences. We cannot allow those we love and amongst whom we live and work to stay put like the six hundred. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, Jesus says in John's Gospel, you will indeed die in your sins. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Gently, and at the right time, everyone needs to hear these truths and to see God's love played out in front of them. And it's up to us to tell them and demonstrate it. And it's not that difficult to do. It may be as easy as lending them a book. Sensing his own lack of purpose, Chuck Colson started reading C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, a book which had been given to him by a friend. Trained as a lawyer, Colson took out a yellow legal pad and began writing down Lewis's arguments. He recalled, I knew the time had come for me. Was I to accept without reservation Jesus Christ as Lord of my life? It was like a gate before me. There was no way to walk around it. I would step through or I would remain outside. A maybe or I need more time. And he was just kidding himself, he said. He found and opened the small gate on the narrow road that led and leads to life. And we need to help others find that gate. So as Paul said, we all need to do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of our ministries. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever age you are, whatever situation you're in, whatever you're doing in life, to find the place that God is calling to you in this. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul says... to to Timothy and and therefore to all of us to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love endurance and gentleness to fight the good fight of the faith and in chapter 4 of his second letter just after the words that we heard Charlotte read to us earlier he says this I have fought the good fight I have finished the race I have kept the faith Now there is in store for me that crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. That seems pretty relevant to me. I don't know about you, but one day I want to kneel before the throne of grace and receive my crown of righteousness and hear those wonderful words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Tom's going to come up, and we're going to go to a bit of a QA and a and discussion. And the first question I'd like you to chat about, and Tom will tell us how we're going to do this, is what was your answer to Jonathan Sachs' question? What were those places for? Okay, I think we've got some questions to be on the screen. I I think they're going to come up on the screen. There's three of them, yeah, yeah. So there's the first one at the top. Okay, so there's three questions, really. Why do you come here to St. Paul's? What are we here for, in other words? Secondly, what aspects of the Gospels do you feel are particularly relevant in your life? How do they show themselves, in other words? And finally, what opportunities could God be opening up in your life to make your faith more relevant to both you and those around you? Or in other words, what cause or problem could you engage with? Okay, right. Well, you might not have time to think about all of those, but certainly take one and see how you get on. Uh, Should we turn in just little groups of perhaps three, four, five, something in that region? Should hopefully.